of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Bradley Bush and Edward Watson, the authors of The Science of Learning, 77 studies that every teacher needs to know. But before we dive into that, a quick word from our sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is kindly sponsored by Tez. Now, most listeners will probably have heard of Tez, but here are two cracking facts for you. Tez have been supporting educators for over 100 years and now have a worldwide community of, wait for it, 13 million. Nice. Tez believe in the power of great teaching and connect teachers and schools all over the world, helping them to improve the lives of children through education. Alas, the summer is over. But fear not, because on Tez you'll find everything you need to give your best performance for back to school. From phase and subject specific resources, to templates to help you get organised, to resources for meeting your new class, back to school icebreakers, reward systems and assembly ideas, you'll find everything you need to get this school year off to a great start at tes.com forward slash back hyphen to hyphen school hyphen 2019. And, as a special treat, you'll even find a maths specific back to school blog written by me. Aren't you lucky? And if that wasn't enough, you'll get a free back-to-school resource bundle when you download or buy any resource from now until the 8th of September. The TES bundles are bursting with bright ideas to give you and your students the best possible start to the new school year. And if you're looking for resources beyond the back-to-school period, then visit tes.com forward slash teaching hyphen resources all year round and browse their library of thousands of resources for every subject. Or why not share your own resource by uploading them to TES to help teachers and students all around the world. Ever since I started teaching, TES has been there to help share the wonderful work of the talented and generous teaching community. It remains my first stop when planning my lessons, and there is no doubt it has improved the learning experience of the thousands of students I've been lucky enough to teach. So check out the Back to School collection and the TES resources in general by following the link on the podcast notes page. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the sponsor packages available. But back to today's episode with Bradley Bush and Edward Watson. 
Now, one of the perks of my job is I get sent loads of lovely free books, mainly on maths, but also on cognitive science and teaching issues as a whole. Now, I'm not the quickest reader in the world, and with a seven-month-old son who does not yet quite seem to have learnt the concept of daddy's quiet time, I have to be really choosy about which ones I sit down to read. But I tell you what, I am sure glad I chose Bradley and Edward's book, The Science of Learning. It is a super accessible guide to pieces of research that can improve what goes on both inside and outside the classroom. And the authors, Bradley and Edward, have a wide range of experience to draw upon, not just from education, but also from the fields of sport and business. So in a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the following things and plenty more besides. How does working with children differ to working with teachers and then also differ to working with adults in other professions? What is a takeaway from a study that someone listening could put into practice straight away? How much homework should we as teachers set and how should students do it? And then one of my favourite topics, yep, it is sleep. Why is sleep important for students? How should we motivate bored students? How should students revise for exams? And what study did Bradley and Edward find the most surprising? Now, it was my mid-career crisis that first exposed me to the world of education research, and I gobbled up a load of it all at once. But one barrier I found myself continually coming up against was the big question, what does this look like in the classroom? I hope this conversation with Bradley and Edward helps answer that question. And as ever, I'll be reflecting on my own takeaways at the end of the interview. The usual plugs before we get cracking. My book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, is still available from all good and all evil bookshops. And I have a new book out that I have edited. It is called Education Myths. It's part of a research ed series. It's available from Amazon and John Cat. And I've got all the big names contributing for uh, to it. Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, Douglamov, Androld, Claire Seeley. It is a showcase of some of the best writing talent around. That's Education Myths. Check it out. Um, if you want to sponsor the podcast, then drop me an email. Uh, you can also support the podcast via Patreon and sign up to buy me a Mellow Birds a month. There are details in the show notes or via patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. And I'm so pleased there's about five of you now who've signed up to do this. And it's just, it makes me so happy because it's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of showing that these podcasts have a use um, outside of my kind of narrow, selfish reasons for doing them just to learn myself and that other people are finding them valuable. Um, my other podcast series, Inside Exams, will be back for season two in the new year. And you can catch up with episodes from season one by following the links in the show notes. And finally, talking of the new school year, make sure you head over to Edie, the parent company of Diagnostic Questions, and sign up for one of our free maths schemes of work. You can map your own scheme to the ones created by the likes of AQA, Edexcel, OCR, White Rose Maths, Maths Mastery, and the Edie GCSE see what scheme that has been created by me. Um, and once you sign up to one of these, it's all completely free. It means your students will get set high quality quizzes throughout the year and you'll benefit from the likes of automated marking, actionable insights, and, and this is my favourite, the ability to plan for error. It's all completely free. Just head to ed.co.uk to get yourself started. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce you to Bradley and Edward. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. 
Okay, so Brad and Edward, we start as we always do on the show with your maths speed dating questions. So, uh, question number one to either of you: What is your favourite number and why? Um, I was going to go for forty-two because that would be obvious, um, <laughs> but I actually went for seven just because it's a remarkable number that that crops up a lot. Uh, it's like seven deadly sins, seven seven colours of the rainbow, days of the week, ones of the world, uh, James Bond's number. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of really cool math stuff, which um, obviously I suspect you don't want me to go into. But oh, it's... well, I'll tell you what, you're on the wrong show if you don't think we want you to go into that. So uh, <laughs> go on, give us just one little interesting maths thing with seven that you like. OK, one of the things I really like about the uh, number seven is it's the lowest natural number that is not the sum of three integer squares. Wow, flipping heck. It's a bit of time to work that one out, but it's true. That's very nice. Okay, I love it. Well, that is a, a very strong start. Um, what, what about, sorry, who, who was that speaking just for the benefit of the listeners? That was Edward. That was Edward. So let's go to you, Brad. Now, we, uh, Edward set the bar pretty high there. What, what are you going for for your favourite number? Yeah, I feel like I should have gone first because it's now <laughs> going to be quite like an anticlimax after that. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about it, and I don't know if you get this a bit, but so I didn't have a favourite number as such, but I've always just much preferred even numbers uh, to odd numbers. I don't know why there's something about... I don't know, the symmetry or just quite how it go into everything. But yeah, always had a fa- been a fan of even numbers over odd numbers. Don't really know why. Yeah, no, I think I'm with, I'm with you on that one. I'm, I'm with you. You miss out on the primes apart from two, but there's, yeah, there's something <laughs> nice. Yeah, there is something nice about the evens. I love that. And in fact, just a little name drop here. When we had uh, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork on the show talking about memory, Elizabeth Bjork was all into her even numbers as well. She can divide them up nicely with families and all that kind of thing. So you're in, you're in good company there. That, that That's is nice it. to know, yeah. <laughs> all right, let's go. What, what about your favourite topic in maths as a student? We'll go back to Edward for this one first. Uh, right, I took uh, A-level mathematics and further mathematics, but I still think that of all the things that I learned, the furthest, the, 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 my favourite topic was mechanics, uh, mainly because I like being able to take mathematics and draw it, uh, and that whole vectoring of mechanics just really was something that excited me. Now, let me tell you something, Edward. You, you're doing well up till that point. Um, <laughs> You've gone down in my estimations there. We have a big mechanics versus statistics split on the show, and I'm very much the stats side of things there. So uh, yeah, and I hate stats, so we're definitely going to oh, be. Oh jeez, right? It could be a long, could be a longer interview this one. Right? Okay, well, Brad, the, the, the door's wide open for you now to. Call nice. It, uh, what so I'm going to try. Uh, yeah, do better then. Uh, I've uh, I remembered uh, probably for me uh, probably uh, working out angles of a triangle um, because it's probably the first time when it was explained to me that. I kind of realised that once you know the step-by-step strategy, maths it wasn't this big, scary, unconquerable thing. It's something that, oh, once you know the process and you know the formula, it then becomes quite easy. So like, I always think learning the angle of a triangle was a bit of a turning point for me with uh, my relationships with maths at school. Nice, a nice little pun there with angles and turning point there. That was that was yeah. nice. That, that won't be lost on the listeners. That that's uh, that's very very good. That and then finally, then let's go back to you, uh, Edward, for your last one. And um, what what would you? I mean, we've got to get into what your jobs actually are at the moment. But if it was nothing to do with kind of um, education and science and learning and so on, what would you what would you like to do? Well, I've had some great jobs in my life. I'd actually like to return to. One of my previous jobs, which was being in the army, because it was fantastic. We got to see a whole bunch of stuff that perhaps most people don't get to see and to work with some extraordinary people. Wow, fantastic. And, and how about yourself, Brad? 
Yeah, I'd probably go um, similar kind of uh, in terms of what I do when I'm not working in education. Um, lucky enough to do stuff in, in sport, um, which is quite nice sort of applying psychological research to athletes and teams to help them improve performance. So kind of feel a bit lucky that I've got a foot, one foot in either in either camp there. Fantastic, super. Well, well, you've kind of teased us a bit about some some of your former life here. So, so let's go for it. Um, just take us through, if you don't mind, just briefly, um, the steps of kind of where it all started for you both and, and where you are today. So again, if we if we go back to um, Edward to start, if that's all right. Okay, so <clears throat> I actually took a chemistry degree, uh, and after leaving university, I took the slight strange step of joining the army. Uh, did that for seven years across the uh, the world uh, and then left that to go into management consulting, which I did for a number of years, uh, working with FTSE 100 companies. Uh, and then after that, I left to do what I'd always wanted to do, which was start up my own company, which I did in online computer gaming. Did that for 10 odd years until eventually I uh, sold the company, retired, played lots of golf. Uh, <laughs> perhaps too much golf. My wife probably um, suggested that it was a good idea that I might go and get a proper job. So I met somebody ironically on the golf course and we started up this company in a drive about 13 or 14 years ago. Um, and in a drive's a mental skills coaching company and we work in sport education and, uh, and in businesses as well. Wow, flipping it, fantastic, and I'm sure we'll dig into your experiences with with um, all those different groups of people and, and your past careers as we go through the conversation. That's absolutely fascinating. And how about yourself, Brad? Yeah, so um, I um, I'm a sports psychologist initially by trade, um, and so back in the day when I was doing my masters, my uh, my research thesis was on um, the fear of failure in teenage athletes and how we could help um, mainly youth footballers. Um, make the step up to senior football and just found it quite interesting then when I was doing all that research how there were lots of the studies were based basically on education um, and there was lots of crossover so kind of whilst helping athletes on a one-on-one basis improve their footballing abilities um, started doing stuff in schools as well just changing the context maybe say applying it to exams and so in sport uh, which I still do a bit of um, working with um, individual footballers in the Premier League from like a range of different clubs and have been lucky enough to be part of the support staff for athletes um, from Team GB for the last two Olympic and Paralympic Games, um, helping them improve performance, handle nerves, become better learners, um, all aspects really that improve performance from a psychological perspective. Um, and then, yeah, kind of doing that side by side uh, with our work in education so within inner drive i mainly do uh the cpd aspect so running staff inset days using similar research but helping them apply it to to their school and to their students wow flipping out they're, they're absolutely fascinating stuff this and um when i was when i was reading up just briefly on, on your backgrounds it got me thinking that you, you work with a, a wide variety of people from from lots of different areas and whereas myself when i find myself working with kids versus working with um teachers i have to kind of tweak my message to kind of 
change the way I do my presentations and my teaching and so on and so forth. But that's nothing compared to kind of the wide variety of people that, that you encounter. So I just wondered, how do you how do you change the way you approach a session, let's say, with students versus with teachers or with parents or with athletes or with business people? What, what are some of the kind of main differences with, with how you interact with those groups of people, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, I'm, and we do really work with like quite a big range. So one day it can be, you know, an England footballer and the next day a group of head teachers. And I think one of the things we try to do is we try to be ourselves and authentic with both because I think people are quite quick to spot when you're being insincere or when you're trying to talk and in kind of inverted commas their language. Um, so I think trying to be that authentic version throughout is quite important. I think one of the things that helps us translate our message to different groups is we know what we're in. So we might be experts in psychological research and potential guidelines for that, but by not trying to act like I know more than the French teacher about how to teach French or telling my footballers about tactics they should be employing, you know, we kind of get them to reflect themselves so that they can apply that. And so I think that's quite key is kind of knowing what we know and knowing what we don't know to then help applying it to any situation. It's, it's fascinating you say that. That's that's something I've been reflecting on a fair bit myself recently. Like I'm a maths teacher and I don't pretend to know anything outside my little kind of secondary maths bubble. But anytime I'm lucky enough to speak to colleagues from other subjects or primary colleagues, I always say that at the start. Like I don't have a flipping clue about anything in terms of subject specific pedagogy or anything like that. And all I can do is say my kind of main message that I passionately believe in and then essentially throw it over to, to the audience to think what would I need to do to to make this work for my situation for my context for my background is is it that kind of thing that's based, that's 100 percent what we do really um i i think the the main emphasis for us is to engage people and interest people and enthuse people and inspire people uh, and then as you say it's up to them up to them to take the teaching or the message and and apply it the way that it most makes sense for them Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that certainly for me seems to be a, a much more effective way of getting the message across than saying, do this, this will definitely work. Do this, this will definitely work. And, and, and so on and so forth. Fas, fas, fascinating. And um, one of my favorite questions I always ask um, on the show, and it tends to be kind of teachers or people with with um, that direct classroom experience who, who I interview. But I think this could work um, equally well with you two is, is about a favorite failure. So I wonder if there's a time and it can be anything. It could be when you're delivering a course. It could be something else from your professional career. But a time where something went wrong. And crucially, what, what did you learn from the experience? OK, I'm going to go for one here. Uh, the, this is from the way distant past where, unfortunately, I decided that perhaps I knew better than everybody who was around me. Uh, and I managed to get my platoon completely and utterly lost for three or four hours at <laughs> about two o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I, lo I learned some pretty painful lessons uh, and uh, and it, it sort of it took me years really to stop having nightmares about it. Uh, and I think the, the lesson that I learned was really you've you know, there are lots of people out there who know stuff that you can learn from uh, and that you should be taking advice from. And if at the end of the day, you think they're all wrong. That's fair enough. But you should at least consider the advice and the teaching and the and the experiences out there. And I think that's kind of a, 
a young thing and as you as you get slightly more mature you realize just all of the great things that people know out there that you should build on rather than um react against wow that's a great favorite failure i, I, I love that one and uh, what about what about the other one that was edward was it yeah i was just thinking so edward went for an old one so i thought i'd go for a really recent <laughs> one uh of just last month uh for me uh i was doing a um a cpd training um insert on metacognition up in um in scotland and part of the one of the studies that we were talking about was um what's kind of the essential ingredients for classroom environment and how do you show like trust essentially how do you build that uh within your students uh and one of the one of the guys from like the back of the room in a broad scottish accent he was saying that for him the key thing he said it was was all about fear and he said i've got to have fear and i was on stage and i was going oh god i wasn't expecting to say fear (laughs) and everyone was kind of looking to see how i was going to reply um and so I questioned him about it and it kind of turned out he was saying that you have to be fair. Uh, <laughs> and so we kind of went down a good five minute tangent of talking about if it's a good motivator and stuff like that. Um, I don't know what I learned from it, but it was pretty funny at the time. Uh, maybe not take myself too seriously when I'm presenting. <laughs> yeah, get a, get a translator if you're in Scotland yeah, as maybe. well. Wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Well, let's turn our attention um, to the book. Now, I tell you what, I get a lot of stick on the podcast because I always big up the um, the books um, that I um, have have people on talking about. But the reason is that I get sent loads of books, and I only pick the ones to to invite on the show who I think it's a really worthy worthy book. So when I say here that this this book, The Science of Learning, is absolutely excellent, I, I, I genuinely mean this. And um, so. Before we get into the kind of specifics um, of it, just just tell us briefly, why did you decide to write this book? Um, well, thank you for, for the kind words um, about the book. Uh, if it makes you feel better, it's kind of a mutual fan club here because when we did the book and our publisher was asking us how we wanted to promote it, uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast and I was dying for us to get an invite on because uh, we've loved some of the episodes. So it's really nice to, to know that you kind of enjo- enjoyed the book. Um, so thank you. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Um, so yeah, how do we write the book? Um, I guess partly was, um, from my perspective, I just got bored in a sense of having to guess what I was meant to be doing. Um, and I always thought like there must be answers out there. Uh, and it turns out like there's just every question I think a teacher can think of and wants to know the answer to like has been researched. And we might not have definitive answers, but there's definitely good guidelines or best bets. And I think once you know the knowledge and once you know this research, you can't imagine having not known it. But then the question then became, why aren't why isn't everyone accessing all these great answers and all this great research? And I think partly a lot of research is behind paywalls. Uh, a lot of it's filled with really psych jargon. So it's not written for its intended audience. Um, and so we just wanted to produce something that was that reflected research and good practice, but was really accessible and understandable uh, and just as a vehicle to kind of get other people's good research out there. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, I know when I was um, researching for my book, it's bloody hard to read some of these research articles. I did not have a clue what was going oh, on with, with half of them. Completely. And so like, I kind of think, you know, some of these journals we've had to read five and six times just to make kind of have a basic understanding. And I think if I like not many people have the luxury of time and, you know, have gone through that research experience themselves. 
And yet I'm still struggling to comprehend it. So then how can I expect someone to be an expert of their subject? Like how can you expect a French teacher or a geography teacher to be an absolute expert in their own subject and essentially an expert in psychology as well? Um, and hopefully this kind of helps bridge that gap a bit. Uh, absolutely. And I, I'll tell you one thing that strikes me immediately about this. And I, I think this is such a, such a smart move. And, and it reminds me a bit of um, Tom Sherrington's most recent book on um, Rosenshine's principles. It's the layout of the book is so it's so easily accessible. So for, for listeners who don't have the book um, in front of them, I'm going to strongly recommend them. Everybody snaps up one of these and um, each each study. So there's 77 studies and each study is across a double page. And you've got the study. You've got the main findings. You've got related research and you've got classroom implications so kind of four big kind of bang 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 um areas for, for each study and um, how did you settle upon that format and, and why go for that particular angle with it okay i think i'll chip in here on this one i mean one of the things that we're very keen on is the idea of helping uh people uh understand psychology and its implications and uh, very much in everything that we do is quite a bit of it is translating all of that techie stuff and making it accessible. Uh, and <clears throat> Brad actually had been going on at me for about 10 years to write a book of some sort. And I always resisted because it's a crazy thing to do. You've got to do a lot of reading. I'm not very good at reading. I've got loads of books. Read them. Uh, and uh, so I, I, in the end, said, we'll do it as long as it's a comic book. And... Uh, <laughs> Bradley wasn't really into that because he's a bit of a psych techie. He wanted to write loads and loads of words. So in the end, we came up with a compromise. And the compromise was this, that, that half of it would be um, pictures, and half of which would I could read, and half of it would be learned text by my colleague Brad. Uh, and so that's kind of why we came up with what we came up with. And as, as we refined it, it then came into this two-page layout where one page is is for people like myself who don't, have very long attention spans and just want to flick through and find cool stuff and then perhaps go into detail on it uh, and then for those who really really want to go into detail there's uh, some good learned text and then some references at the back which where you can go back to the original studies but most of us don't have time to do the techie stuff most of us like yourself just we you know we we want to find out the information quickly and, and I think that that's kind of where we went to yeah and i love it because as you say there's the option to go as deep as you want so you've got your links to the related research so if you if you, if you want to kind of challenge your interpretation of it and, and go to the original source you can do so i love that aspect but i also love the classroom implications because that that's often the most difficult thing so it's taking a study and thinking well what, what does this actually mean for my for my day-to-day -day teaching that that fascinates me and i just just on that what what was your technique there for writing that did, did you bring uh, teachers into play how how did you how did you come up with these classroom implications? I, I mean, that's the hardest part, because summarizing the study um, is basically just like the headline results. Um, writing the classroom implications is the most difficult because it looks so different. So you take a concept like any of them, like let's take retrieval practice, which, you know, lots of people are talking about how it looks. I think in a primary school might be different to how it looks in a secondary school. It looks different in English as it does to art or maths. And so partly what we had to do, we were lucky because we have lots of contact with a lot of good teachers. So there was a good bit of Q&A that went back and forth. Um, and we just tried to do it in a way that provided a general enough guideline that different teachers could take different implications from it while still giving something concrete 
that gives them enough to to start with yeah that 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 makes perfect sense and i think that that like you say that's all you can do and it it goes back to what we what we were saying about this at the start about effective cpd that it's down to the teachers to think okay what can i do to tweak this to to make it work for my for my circumstances and and i think you strike the right balance of giving the right kind of suggestion and 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 detail for that as i said i I think it's superb so my question is before we we dive into the 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 real details of this what what, what's the dream how how do you hope teachers and schools will use it and in fact have you had any feedback for, from how teachers and schools are actually using the book yeah we've actually been a bit blown away by some of the feedback because like you know you, you work on something yourself and you get so close to it and by the end you don't actually know if it's any good or not by the time you're like so close to it um so we've been quite blown away by some of the feedback we've got we know a lot of um schools are giving them either to their heads of year or heads of departments as a way of just prompting discussion um and prompting debate because i think knowing the research is one thing and so we can help with that level of it um but then combining that with knowledge of your cohort and your subject and actually those discussions are where the real value is um and so we've been really encouraged by schools who've uh, added it to their teacher cpd library or using it um as just conversation starters in the staff room so that more people are talking about research um and then seeing what avenues that goes down fantastic now um let, let's dive into some of these in particular well the the, the 77 studies and yeah that, that was the other thing i just wanted to ask did you where, where did 77 come from did you write the studies and just count them up or did you have a a few kind of like 77 a nice number it's a nice interesting number did it's, were you always aiming for 77 or was that was that just kind of luck did I not mention very early on? In- <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <laughs> the number seven is a very important number. Just imagine putting two sevens next wow. to it. That is very, very good. I like it. That is that is brilliant. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's 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 dive into some of these studies um, themselves. So, um, I, I want to talk first about ones aimed at teachers, and then ones aimed at, at students, and then just kind of ones in general that that might be your favourite or particularly surprising ones. So, let, let's start with teachers. Now, one thing that listeners to this show love are practical takeaways, something that they can listen to now. Perhaps drive. Maybe they're even driving into work um, as as we speak something that they can put into practice either today or tomorrow or next week with with relatively little effort and what would you suggest there um i'm going to go for the study on retrieval practice i know it's quite current at the moment and a a lot of people know about it but the the results are reasonably extraordinary uh so one of the things that i'm very interested in is what is actual knowledge uh, is for some people it's it's actually just awareness. Uh, so reading and rereading notes is is quite a common uh, revision technique. And I used to I used to actually take it to extremes. I used to read in bed before I went to sleep and then put the books underneath my pillow so that the <laughs> would come through the pillow into my head. Uh, and you know, in a way, that's kind of what reading and rereading notes tends to to end up as is that you have students will say i know the text i know it so well i know my notes but off by heart but actually uh when it comes to uh the the moment when they have to 
put it out on a piece of paper, logically ordered and with some reasoning behind it, it becomes very difficult. Uh, and the only way to be ready for that is to is to practice, is to actually um, test yourself or be tested on 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 the on the uh, information that is in those notes. Uh, and that's something we call retrieval practice. And the um, and students think that rereading their notes is is actually the most important thing to do in revision. And actually, it turns out when you look at the results from uh, research that uh, the testing bit is the important bit because it anchors stuff in the brain much better than actually reading. Yeah, and ab- absolutely. Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Brad. Um, just on that, um, this is one of the things that, that's fascinating about this for me. And again, this goes back to, we mentioned Robert Bjork, this goes back to Bjork's work on, on desirable difficulties, that the problem with kind of rereading is it, it feels so nice. It feels familiar. It feels like everything's going in, especially you get the highlighters out and it looks pretty and it, it, it looks like you're doing some real good work. And I, I've had kids come to me saying, oh, I did two hours revision last night. And I said, well, what did you do? And oh, I read through my notes i watched the video i did some highlighting and so on so it feels comfortable whereas retrieving it feels flipping painful it's 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 really hard to do and for me one of the biggest challenges with with a lot of these findings from cognitive science is is getting the kids on board with them because often they're they're counterintuitive and they feel a lot more difficult than the comforting, less effective things that the students like to do. Um, is that something that you found? And do you have any any kind of guidance on that? Well, I think the the saying that I've come across recently, which I think is really good, is that memory is the residue of hard work, and you actually have to you actually have to engage with the with the knowledge and and, and work it and do something with it. Otherwise, it doesn't stay there. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think and think in terms of getting students to kind of acknowledge that or kind of how do you help that? Like there has to be some conversations at some stage of what people prefer isn't what's best for them. So I always kind of joke with students like my goddaughter, she prefers to eat chocolate ice cream for breakfast. That's her that's her <laughs> preference. But like that's not what's best for her. And the same is I think for reading versus retrieval practice. Um and I think by uh, what we found is a lot of teachers have asked us when they when they like when we talk about this study, for example, is that they go, can you send us some of these graphs that we can at least show them like this proof that, you know, the evidence is out there that what you're doing might not be actually and what you think you're doing well isn't actually what's best for you. Um, so I think kind of objective data and more knowledge is, is a good barrier. Um, and going back to your question of like, how do teachers then use this in a practical way? Um I always think that the start and the end of the lessons are key moments that you can easily weave in finding some cognitive psychology. Uh, I used to always start with, you know, five minutes of write down the learning outcomes or lesson objectives. And I used to always finish with five minutes of let's summarize the key points that we covered. And I just think now well, that's just 10 minutes wasted mm. compared to if I did a bit of quizzing at the start and a bit of quizzing at the end. Um, just at, like looking for opportunities to sneak in a bit more of this retrieval practice, um, I, I think offers a good start. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, yeah, it, for, for me, it's, it's the key and, and moving away from. So this is my 15th year of teaching. In the first 12 years, lessons were just taught in nice, tidy little blocks. It was this lessons on adding fractions, this lessons on drawing a box plot, whatever it is. And 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 
building in explicit moments where students have to retrieve not just information related to the current topic, but something they did last week, last month, last year. It's it's so simple and it sounds so obvious now, but it's it, it's the key because if if students, as you say, if they're not retrieving, then they're not they're not strengthening the the storage and retrieval strength of these memories and and, and so on and so forth. No, I I, I completely agree with that. Um, oh, Brad, oh sorry, go, go on. No, I was just going to say. Um, the whole concept of uh, not just quizzing, but quizzing stuff that you said like you did last week or last month um, is spot on. Uh, one of our favorite studies of the book was um, actually a replication of like quite an iconic study of um, Ebbinghauser's forgetting curve, um, which is kind of stood the test of time. And that kind of links into the concept of you have to revisit information a lot. Uh, one of the schools we know off the back of um this sort of research, they came up with the term they call thinking Thursdays, which is uh, every Thursday, the start of every lesson, the students are going to get a quiz on something they did three or four months ago. Uh, so something they're not expecting to be fresh in their mind. So that way they're combining both this concept of retrieval practice and indeed spacing uh, just to kind of really make them think about the material. Um, and I think that's quite a nice application of weaving research into actually daily practice yeah I, I completely agree and the other thing i like about that and this is something i've certainly found over the last few years is is routine so important and, and students expectations are so important that if they know for example in, in that one that every thursday this is going to be happening they're prepared for it less lesson time is spent explaining what's happening what they need to do and so on and so forth and and when when kids are used to what's going to happen that there's a there's a real power in that i think in terms of getting the most out of every every minute within lessons but again we can we can dive into certainly motivation and stuff later on with kids and um, brad was the was the one that you wanted to say about a study that teachers could put into practice straight away or would you go for retrieval as well uh i, I do a slightly different version but of a similar line um so kind of the two studies so i like the studies on memory quite a lot and obviously retrieval seems to be like the big win and it's, it's the most fashionable one at the moment uh the other areas i think are worth highlighting um so there's, we did a study on pre-questions. So a pre-question is when you ask someone the question before you teach them the material. So instead of saying in this lesson, we're going to learn about how many fish there are in the Atlantic. A pre-question would be you'd ask them that question, like how many fish do you think there are in the Atlantic before you actually teach them that material? Uh, and what they found by asking the pre-questions, it kind of increased students' curiosity and attention for the lesson. And so as a result, uh, they found that when they then later tested the students on how much they remembered, uh, their recall rates were up by about 50 percent. Um, so using questions before you teach material is quite nice. And that also complements another study which is on the technical term is on is called elaborative interrogation. But in layman's terms, that's just asking people, why do you think that's the case? And so they found by getting students, you teach them information, but by getting them to reflect on why is this the case or why is it true for X, but not Y, you're getting them doing more of the thinking. And they found students who'd been exposed to this kind of elaborative interrogation, um, their memory levels, the amount they record from the lesson uh, almost doubled. Uh, so I think using pre-questions before you teach material and using elaborative interrogation, this whole concept of why is that the case after you teach the material, they're both kind of, I guess, retrieval practice techniques, but kind of stand alone. I think that's something I can practically do tomorrow that is going to improve learning straight away. 
It's absolutely. I'm, I'm so pleased you've you've said this because uh, you, you two might actually be the perfect people to, to help me out with this because I've I've struggled with with this one particularly um, in my reading of the literature I, I come across it known as the, the pretest effect this idea right. of asking asking these questions that kids have never been taught as a way to either increase curiosity or, or prime the students to start thinking about this particular area so they're more receptive when, when they get taught it. The, the problem I've got, and I don't know whether this is, it could just be me being a bad teacher or it could just be my subject of mathematics, um, or it could just be the kids that I've, I've been trying this with. But anytime I try this, what, the, the barrier I tend to get is that if I show the kids a problem that I know they can't do because they haven't been taught it yet, for quite a few of the kids, that, that's quite frustrating and, and, and off-putting. And it can actually lead them to, to almost give up before I've actually got around to teaching them the new way of, of doing it. Whereas with some groups, it works really well as this kind of moment of, of, of intrigue to, to hook them in and get them, get them really keen. To, to learn the techniques to, to solve this problem or to carry out this method and um, is there any uh, is there anything whether it's from your reading or just your general experience that, that finds that some of these these techniques from from cognitive science actually there's a psychological side to it that that means that they're either less effective or more effective with with certain groups of students than others if, if any of that makes any sense at all Almost certainly. And I think where um, the big drive to be more research engaged, the big challenge faces is if it's per if it's perceived as just do this thing all the time because it works everywhere for all situations. Uh, that's why we kind of call them good guidelines or best bets, because your knowledge of maths now will, and, and, and of your students probably will give you an indicator of when is best to use this technique and when's best not to. Uh, for example, on pre-questions, there was one study, we didn't include it in the book, but it's, I think we included in the related research part was, um, if you ask someone a pre-question, say, and then give them a text to read to find the information or they watch a video, um, that tends to have quite a negative impact on learning because they then basically skim read everything that's not related to that pre-question, ignore everything and just try and find the answer. Whereas we know pre-questions work better if say the teacher's at the front because you can't fast forward my teaching I control the pace of the lesson so that's not to say pre-questions are always good or indeed always bad it's in the art of how do I use them and I think you have to have that trial and error and knowledge of your students to be able to work out how best to apply these techniques so it's not just a blunt instrument that you use all the time well and also pre-questioning pre one of its roles as you, as you mentioned is to is to um, prime the students. I uh, discover or expose uh, knowledge that they already have that they can hook the new knowledge into to make, make it stay in the brain. And clearly, if you, if you ask questions that have no connectors, that there are no sites to, to, to expose, then, then it is going to be frustrating. Uh, so there is a bit of a technique and a bit of a, an art to asking the right questions that actually expose those uh, original sites that you can hook the knowledge into absolutely it's absolutely fascinating stuff this well well what about um a study or a result that a teacher listening could think ah this this, this is going to be my focus to build in over the the course of the next term or even the course of a year and perhaps even working with a group of colleagues or, or a department is, is there anything that you think is a long-term good bet Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to be very controversial here uh, <laughs> because it is something that we need to we need to do something about. And I have 
no brilliant answers to it, but there are, I'm going to talk about mobile phones. Uh, mobile phones are uh, an extraordinary invention and they are essential and clearly we need to know and teach our students how to use them properly because they are very, very powerful. However, there is quite a, a big downside to it. And, and one of the studies in our book uh, exposes the idea that that um, but just by having the phone there uh, on the desk in front of you decreases your uh, your performance. And so uh, another one of the studies that we have in there, they, they did a some research based on looking at schools that had banned mobile phones and those that hadn't. And there was a, a in terms of GCSE results, a 6% difference. And some of the less able students, it was as high as 14% difference. Wow, flipping heck. That's something that we need to be aware of. And certainly in, again, not very scientific, in my, my experience of seeing these phones come into the um into the classroom there is a big big difference in terms of concentration and focus and all of those things and that has to be related to how well people learn and we can't just ignore it and go oh these things are so wonderful that we have to let people use them and they have to learn by some sort of magical way how to use them properly because we all need to be taught how to use this stuff so that it doesn't decrease our performance so I think that that's I, get, um, I know it's controversial, and I know a lot of your your listeners will be going, would be throwing things at the radio now, which is probably not good if they're driving. Uh, but it's something that we do need to be aware of and think about. It's fantastic. So. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're probably throwing the mobile phone at you as, as yeah. you speak, actually. Um, it's, it's fascinating that you, you say that because there's there's this trade-off, isn't there, versus that like the, the, the technology, the power that's available to kids now. That, that I mean, even, even my, myself, that, that wasn't available to, to me when I was at school versus this, this yeah, this distracting element of them. And again, as a maths teacher, it's, it's real pertinent to me because there's amazing graph drawing software, whether it's Desmos or jojo that's available on kids uh, on kids phones there's wolfram alpha that can calculate some amazing things but you've you've got to you've got to weigh that up against as you say and I, again it's annoying me this i can't quite remember where i read this this week but um yeah it's exactly what you're what you're saying there edward that just the presence of mobile phones even if you're not interacting with them directly distracts you gets you thinking about almost interacting and, and thinking about what you're missing out and with them and and it's yeah, it's a massive trade-off, and I think as controversial as it is, I think I'm, I'm leaning towards towards your view on this one that that the banning them is 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 the way forward, and 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 just getting out this this specialist technology, whether it's whether it's via iPad or Chromebook or whatever, um, as and when's needed. But I guess the downside to that is that that requires schools to invest in having this technology available, whereas most most kids these days would have it in their pockets ready to go. So it's it's so difficult, isn't it? It's the, the, there's a definite trade-off here versus uh, the technology versus uh, the distraction. Well, I guess the question for me and the way kind of where I've got to be on a complete tipping point with this now in terms of it's good to ban them is, how much benefit do you need to get that you're happy to lose 14% for your struggling students in their GCSEs? Because like 14% at GCSEs is a huge number. And so if I'm going into this knowing that in my home, my most struggling students the most, I'm going to want to lose as part of that trade-off. And so it's not to say that there aren't some benefits, but for me, the benefits clearly don't outweigh 14% for struggling students. 
Yeah, that's a that's a smart way of looking at it. Flipping egg. Okay, well that that is that is an excellent answer. That's will will stir up a, a great deal of thought with with listeners. And how, how about you, Brad? Do you, do you have one here? Yeah. Um. So the one that I found quite interesting in terms of if a group of teachers were going to work together, um, relates to one of the studies on resilience. Um, because I used to think resilience was all about you might be seven out of ten resilient, and the person next to you might be nine out of ten, and if we can each help the individual improve their resilience levels that's kind of a good bet or a good thing to do um but one of the studies looked at um the environment that one can create for like say your classroom uh what does an environment that leads to them developing resilience look like so therefore you're capturing all of your students uh and the two factors they kind of came up with um that you need both of to help people develop their resilience is um the first is what they call the level of challenge so high demand, high expectation, high belief that they can improve and get better than they did yesterday. Um, and these high expectations, they're more about behaviours rather than outcomes. Uh, so on one hand, you, you, you set the bar high, uh, essentially. Uh, and then the other factor that it combines with is level of support. Uh, so this includes feeling connected to the group, knowing who to go to for emotional advice or technical advice. Uh, and, you, and you need the two. You need to have high levels of demand but also that the learner feels supported. And for me, I think why that's important across our whole school is this consistency. So if they're getting it in one class, but in another class, they're not getting that high level of support or not getting that high level of demand. When there's inconsistency, there's ambiguity, which leads to learning decreases, basically. And so I think as a group of teachers and educators sitting down and going, for us as a school or as a college, what does high demand and high support look like? Like if I went into your lesson, what would I see? And knowing that the classroom next to you is doing the same sort of thing in terms of those two, I think then creates an environment where resilience can develop as opposed to it being this big motivational speech that you have to give to in order to increase their resilient levels. That, that's really interesting you, you say that as well with them um, because again i've been reading just these last couple of weeks it's all been kicking off about growth mindset again it's yeah, just yeah. every few months there's, there's a big thing about it and but it's really really kicking off um over this last week at, at the time of recording because people are coming out just saying it's an absolute load of nonsense and even carol dweck's coming out and saying she didn't quite realize just how complex it, it was it was going to be in terms of applying these principles to, to schools and it's a similar thing with resilience i mean there's no chance growth mindset works if you just have a, a one-hour assembly at the start of the year bang up a few posters and expect everyone to to develop this growth mindset it's there's two things that's really struck me about what you said there first is the consistency they can't just be getting this message in in one lesson and not getting in the other but also there's there's the support element to this that it's all well and good having the challenge it's all well and good giving kids these complex problems and so on and so forth but without that challenge it just becomes bloody frustrating and really demotivating for these kids and in fact the resilience levels can can decrease and their, their their mindset which could have been pretty open can become fixed pretty quickly if that support isn't there if, if that makes sense oh completely and so when we were researching the book so we included one or two studies that refer to growth mindset um and i was looking at okay so what does the research say about grades for example and i found about 20 studies from around the world and around different age groups that found yeah students with a growth mindset has a positive impact on grades and then i found about 10 that said it had no impact on grades at all and that's really hard because people when they look at research they just want the headline findings um like does it help or does it not help and always there's nuance on like 
it can help or it can help under these situations, uh, which is interesting because even the last growth mindset study that came out, uh, the headlines, you know, as reported were, oh, it didn't have uh, an impact. Whereas when you read what the actual researchers said on the study is, you know, they found it really hard to compare because the control group had already been exposed to growth mindset or maybe it would help for this age group or in this setting differently. Um, we know, for example, the research says it tends to help more with struggling students than students who are already quite high achieving. So there's all this kind of nuance to kind of wade through, which is difficult because people want often very binary answers um and so i think a good starting point is you read the research but then you kind of go how what does the research say and can this transfer over and what situations might it work and might it not work but you have to know the studies to start with to start that conversation i think absolutely absolutely flipping out now this, this is brilliant this um i want to i want to talk now about a particular area that's that's very important to me and there are many teachers listening and that, that's homework because again it's the amount of hours I've spent marking books on a Sunday afternoon or on a Wednesday evening and stuff. And uh, again, I, I've for many years, I've been wondering, am I literally wasting my time um, doing this? Well, what, what what's your view on homework based on what, what you've read in your experiences? Yeah, so um, the study we included um, on homework uh, is actually one of my favorite because it's just one of these things that everyone does it and you do it because you've always done it. And that's not to say it's bad, but it's worth working out how do we best do it. Um, and like kind of three main findings kind of came out. Um, on the, and this was quite a big study. I think they did like well over a thousand students um, across different schools. And they found um, frequency matters more than quantity. So regular homework uh, is more of an important factor than just the time spent on homework. So little and often is always for most things is better than a lot all at once um and more is not always better so what they found is uh students who got the best grades and the best exam results they were typically doing about you know 100 minutes of homework a night um as a total but so that might be the most effective but they actually found it not to be the most efficient and they found that about an hour of homework a night was the most efficient because even though there were small improvements between an hour and a hundred minutes, the amount of improvement wasn't didn't wasn't justified in the amount of time it took. Uh, and so they say so uh, regular is more important than just the amount. Um, Sixty minutes seems to be quite an efficient number, whereas a hundred minutes is a perhaps most effective number. Uh, and my favourite finding, which I wasn't expecting from this study, but when you think about it, probably makes sense, was they found that students who did the homeworks. Uh, who did the homework without their parents help did about 10 percent better um because they'd had time to struggle and wrestle with it uh, and i guess long term that makes sense because as they become older in school and they became get more knowledge in those subjects than perhaps their parents did they have to be able to do this stuff independently um so i found that quite an interesting finding of because uh, that's implication both for the school and for me as a parent that's quite handy for me to know it's an interesting one that that last bit in that as a parent it's like that seems to be an excuse for me just to let them get on with it and <laughs> do it but actually I, I don't think that's kind of what it's saying is that, that you still have a bit of parental responsibility to provide the structure for it to happen and that's the difficult bit is that kids will try as much as they can not to do any homework at all if given a chance whereas if they're given the right structure 
then then it becomes efficient. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, again, you, you mentioned homework. These are all thoughts that have been swimming around in my mind over the last six six months or so. Um, homework's an interesting one. We we as a, a maths department a few years ago we rewrote all our homeworks. It took us bloody ages to do it. <laughs> Everyone was involved. Hours and hours and hours and hours. We we did we rewrote it when, when I'd started reading about retrieval. So instead of having topic specific homeworks, we had mixed topic homeworks to tap into spacing effect and all this kind of stuff. Spent hours doing these homeworks, but it goes back to something i think you said um, edward earlier on and um, we gave these out to kids and for a decent proportion of kids they just weren't putting any effort in whatsoever they was maybe spending 30 seconds on the homework or copying off their mate on the way in on the bus and it doesn't matter how well designed a resource is or how much it's its findings are based in cognitive science and supported by research and so on and so forth if the kids don't put any effort in it's, it's not going to work at all. And that, that's one thing that, that really strikes me about everything. Um, everything I read, it, it all comes down to kids' effort, doesn't it? And if, if, if the kids aren't putting the effort in, no learning's going to take place. And that, that seems particularly true with, with, with homework. And does, does that make sense? Yes. And, and also, it's just, you know, it's the big white elephant in the room is that you put all that effort into teaching kids at, at school and then they go home and there's a different environment and a different mindset about education and homework and all of those things. Uh, and that for me is quite a big disconnect. And, and again, there's, it's another thing perhaps that teachers ourselves should be thinking about is how do you engage parents in that whole thing? Because they have the kids most of the time and if they are not giving the right structures for homework, then as you say, perhaps you are wasting your time. And yeah, just just on that, um, Dylan William, he, he spews out kind of good educational quotes left, right and centre. Yeah. And what, one of my favourites, and I'll, I'll, I'll mess this up, but um, he says something along the lines of that um, teachers could um, learn a lot from um, music teachers. I think they're called pe peripatetic. I can never say that word, but the teachers who come in and just teach kind of guitar for one hour a week or record or, or whatever it is. So they, they only see their kids, perhaps actually even 20 minutes a week sometimes. Um, and he said that... The, the, what they're very good at is realising that actually what happens in those 20 minutes isn't going to be the key to, to students learning because no one can learn the guitar 20 minutes a week or, or learn the piano 20 minutes, 20 minutes a week. What, what they do in that 20 minutes is to, to prepare kids to practice effectively outside of that 20 minute period because that's where the learning is going to take place. Whereas a lot of classroom teachers, and I put myself firmly in this camp, I'm under the illusion that all the learning is taking place in the three or four hours per week that I see my kids in math lessons. Whereas, as you say, they spend the vast majority of time outside of, uh, of lessons. And it's those structures, that kind of culture that happens there, that that's going to have more of an impact on, on what learning takes place than, than anything I do in lessons, really. Uh, again, I don't, know if, I don't know if you'd agree with that at all. No, I'm, I'm right behind that. I think that's a really good way of explaining it as well. And, and let's, let's sort of uh, flesh out another white elephant in the room is, you know, actually a big proportion of learning happens in the two months before the exams when they're, they're revising like crazy because they, they want to do well in their exams. And perhaps if that was spread out over the year, it would be a bit more effective. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, um, just one more thing on on um, the kind of teacher side of things, although this definitely touches on students as well, and that's maths anxiety. So we have um, we, we have listeners of um, teachers of all subjects listening to this podcast these days, but I always like to keep keep it loyal to, to the original maths maths uh, gang that followed me from the beginning. So maths right. anxiety is something that I've, I've read about um, in in preparation for my book, and I've I've spoke to a couple of people about it, but I'm I'm interested in in your take on maths anxiety so what do you perceive it to be and crucially um, as teachers what what can we do to help our students with it so it's an interesting one because someone once told me that uh, students will have the strongest opinions about two subjects at school they'll either love or hate it and there's no middle ground uh, one is maths and the other is PE um, <laughs> yes, yes. I mean it's something people have strong opinions about uh, I'd start with a slight caveat of I do sometimes worry that we over i don't know what the phrase is we tend to put very clinical terms over everyday emotions so we know some students find it stressful or frustrating and so that's not to say that everyone has maths anxiety because they either don't like maths or they struggle with it uh, but we know that is a particular subject that people have very strong opinions about um two studies i found quite interesting in terms of helping people with maths anxiety uh, the first relates directly to teacher practice uh so one of uh what this one study did was um it took teachers through a hypothetical situation so they said the situation is this um one of your students did really badly in their first maths exam of the year um and so your first question you have to answer as the teacher is uh what do you think this child's future maths ability will be like uh, and they said, uh, talking about growth mindset earlier, they measured teacher mindset. And they said teachers with a growth mindset were more likely to think that, you know, I don't have enough data to make this judgment call. I've only got a sample size of one result. Whereas teachers with a fixed mindset were more likely to view the first uh, result as proof that the kids had low mass ability. And so then they took it a step further and they said, how would you respond to these students? And teachers who said it's too early to tell who had this growth mindset, they were much more likely to what uh, the researchers coined uh, be strategy focused. So let me break down the problem for you. Here's the step by step guide. Let me set you extra questions because you need the practice. Even stuff like know that I'm going to call on you next week in class because this is an area we know you need to improve on. Whereas teachers with the fixed mindset were much more likely, with good intentions, I should say, to do what they call a comfort approach of going stuff like, no, you know, not everyone can be good at maths and we all have other skills and like, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you too many questions because I don't want you to feel dumb or I don't want to embarrass you. And so they had two very different approaches. And then they went back to a different bunch of students and they said, here's the situation. You did badly in your first exam. Your teacher either said X or they said Y. How does this make you feel? And they found the students who'd got the strategy focus were much more likely to be motivated and had higher self-expectations of their future maths ability, where students who'd had the comfort approach actually had the exact opposite of the intended effect and actually made them feel worse about maths and their ability to do maths because they were seen as proof that their teacher knew that they didn't have the required ability. So a lot of it does stem from the culture and the environment that we create around students um, and that's from a teacher perspective. And just to really drive that wedge home, there was a nice study that looked at parents' uh, behaviours and how that links to maths anxiety. And they found quite interesting different gender approaches. So they found parents of boys were much more likely to rate maths as important and say that their 
some uh, that expect them to do well in the future in maths, whereas parents of daughters were much more likely to rate maths as being less important for their daughter um, and say they'd expect them to work much harder in order to achieve similar results. And so you take all these things combined of, you know, I go in with some preconceived notions myself as a student and then I either interpret or misinterpret what my teacher's saying or I kind of view what my parents are saying and it creates this whole culture where it becomes acceptable to say I'm not a maths person, uh, whereas I don't really know of any other subject where people feel comfortable saying that, like I'm not a reading person, you know, well, I'll teach you how to read then. Um, and so there is something quite special, it seems, about maths, maybe because there's a right or a wrong answer and it's quite definitive uh, that people have a higher feel failure for it. But this in a way is good news because it means as adults, as teachers or parents, we can help influence their attitude towards this subject based on our own practice. That's really interesting that, Brad. Um, Again, for maths teachers listening here, it will be the all too familiar thing that happens at parents' evening where, where parents will say, well, I was never good at maths. And as soon as they say something like that, you just cringe because you think your kid's got no chance here. Because if if that's if that's that's the ceiling just been lowered by about 10 meters there. But by by saying something by saying something like that, but you you can understand it because maths is a very divisive thing. And like you say, I think it is a lot to do with this right and wrong element of it, which you perhaps don't get in, 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 in other in other subjects. But what really strikes me about this, and it goes back to what we were saying about homework, is that obviously the teacher has got a massive role to play but but the parents come in come into play a lot on this as well and one school i've been doing some work in over the last 12 months what they do is they they bring in parents um into school for this very reason to to, to outline just how important it is the message that they give to their kids at home that sure it's important to 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 get them studying homework and routines and to, to bed early and we'll talk about sleep and sleep in a few minutes but also to just to mention to parents that the messages they give whether they're for for the right intentions because again parents saying to a kid who struggled on a math test oh don't worry about it and not everyone can be good at this you're good at other subjects they're saying that for the right reasons yeah they're, they're trying to be comforting and so on but but making it clear to parents that, that actually these messages perhaps aren't the most useful and in fact a better way of framing that would be to do this this and this i think that can be so so effective and it just really brings home to me the the importance of appreciating as i've as i've banged on about already that we see kids for a, a really limited a really small proportion of time compared to the rest of their lives and it's making sure where possible that these 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 positive messages get outside of our classroom as as well as being within our classroom if, if that makes sense absolutely and it goes almost the other way as well so i found this area quite interesting because i've just um fairly recently had a little one um and so i find the sort of messages and kind of how uh we as parents and his grandparents communicate with him and like sometimes it goes the other way and there's just so much lavish praise <laughs> yes. oh you're so you're the smartest thing and it's like it's, it's not the smartest thing like he, he just farted like that's not really <laughs> like but like everything just gets praised like to the nth degree and you kind of see with some people one of um one research i found quite interesting is people with a smart reputation uh find certain events really stressful because if you feel like your reputation's on the line uh with each performance and you're constantly being judged as either smart or not then you know some subjects that have a definitive answer uh can be really stressful because you're worried that your whole reputation is kind of up for grabs which is quite a a daunting thought for, for for teenagers especially 
Absolutely. F- fascinating. Um, right. I-, I can't resist uh, asking you this any longer. So, um, again, if, you- if you've listened to a couple of episodes of this show, one thing I find it hard not to talk about is sleep. I'm absolutely ob- obsessed with sleep. And Brad, we- we've just had a little one as well. So he's at the time of recording. Right. He's, um, he's coming up. Well, he's coming up to six months. So yeah. sleep, sleep is, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, sleep, yeah. ironically, is, is a distant dream um, for, for me these days. But I've always been obsessed with sleep. Um, Matthew Walker's book um, on, on Why Do We Sleep is, is one of my all time favorites um, and I again I think this is something that is is a real potential big win for schools and for teachers and for parents and for pupils but it's something that for some reason doesn't seem to have found its way into the classroom in the same way that perhaps retrieval has and, and stuff so t- tell us about your, your your findings your interpretation of the research into into the importance of sleep for students and perhaps we can tease out some practical things that that we as teachers can do to to help students and parents feel and appreciate the benefits of sleep okay well i'm going to take this one on uh, i've actually come out well i'm hoping i've almost come out the other end my children are 18 and 21 uh, and i if i was going to do anything uh, differently the one thing uh, as a parent, one, the one thing that I'd sort out would be the whole sleep thing. I think the greatest gift you can give your child is to teach your child how to have regular sleep uh, and the right amount of sleep. I, don't, I, I think it's if that's one of the major things that you can do as a parent is to help them to sleep, particularly nowadays. Uh, and uh, so so there, there is quite a bit of research out there on the benefits of sleep um and and it's really easy to do you just take divide groups into half and half you give a regular amount of sleep and half you deprive them of sleep and there's some big studies out there some of the more impressive ones are uh memory tests where uh performance of sleep deprived students has been 40 percent less than those who have a decent amount of sleep and that's a, a lot of um a lot of performance difference i think one of the again one of the things that i see more and more in 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 classrooms is just kids who can barely stay awake they're yawning they're some of them are i know that i you know sometimes i i'm slightly off my game but if somebody's falling asleep in your class there's there's an issue there uh and and if and if as a lot of the research is saying is that sleep means that you are less able to make those those connections in the brain to to remember stuff and that's happening day in day out um then then there is an issue and and it's not surprising there's an issue because again here's one for your listeners how much sleep did you have last night and how much sleep are you supposed to have had last night and every night we justify the fact that we had six hours sleep last night because we had a really important thing to do the next day but yeah yes that's possibly true every now and then but not every single night and and kids in my experience are are really going for it and 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 i and i actually take a reasonably hardcore stance in in my household but and still and still they're on uh, you'll go in sometimes at one o'clock in the morning and they're still on their phones uh, which brings me back to the mobile phone again so here's a question that i often ask parents in particular is so uh, how many of you let your children have their phones in their bedroom? Uh, to which the answer is all of them. Uh, and why? And the answer is the main answer that comes out is because my children say that if they don't have a phone in their bedroom, uh, then they don't have the alarm clock function and they won't. <laughs> time. 
And the answer to that is go on Amazon and buy an alarm clock. Five quid it costs you. And then you don't have to have your phone in the room. And then the, the, then the next fallback position is, well, I don't want to be cruel and I don't want to, it, them to be different. And I don't. And it's their phone. And how can I take the phone off? And the answer is no. Who's paying for it? They're not paying for it. They're still students. Uh, and so it is your phone. And it is, again, another issue that we have in the modern age. And it's kind of snuck up on us as parents is how do we teach our children to use their phones in a, in a way that means that it doesn't keep them awake uh, for two or three hours in the night when they should be sleeping? Uh, so, yes, yeah, sorry to be, again, controversial. <laughs> Not at all. No, th- th- I, again, this this is an area that, that fascinates me and, and, and I know lots of people. And I guess it, for, for me, one thing that's worked quite well with, with my kids, um, and by my kids, I mean the, the, the kids I teach um, maths to, and, and this this is a wider lesson I think that I found particularly important with with all the the cognitive science principles I've tried to try to share with my students and get them to to build into their own habits is to tell them why, why we're doing it and sleep in particular is is a really easy one because all you need to do is share some of the studies that you've mentioned there Edward and say to the kids look you could it's like a it's like a secret that nobody knows like if if you can be getting a good sleep you can be you're like you're like a superhuman you're supercharged you can be remembering things you can be taking in new information you can be making more links why on earth would you want to disadvantage yourself and by reducing that kind of processing power by 30 percent 40 percent and for some kids you know it's that message that, that that makes the difference as opposed to you know the more kind of hard line you must get to sleep and so on and so forth so again i'm, I'm intrigued from your background particularly yeah, go on. So behind you on that one is is awareness is really really important, and we we give talks about this uh, both to students and to parents and to teachers, and every one of those groups, you look out into the audience and their mouths are literally on the floor because they haven't heard it before, uh, which is always a surprise for us. And it is, it's like why would you give away a grade? as a student uh, because you want to be on the phone at night why would you as a as a parent allow something as addictive as a phone in, into the bedroom uh, when you have actually got the option to perhaps persuade or even even have some impose some discipline on your 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 children so that that doesn't happen and and it is about awareness but it's also about telling people that you're not alone so quite often particularly parents will say, is anybody else having this problem? And everyone's nodding their heads. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you what, though. So I'm so obsessed with sleep now. It's gone the other way for me. And I think this is a danger. So I've I've got Fitbit on my arm. I'm tracking my sleep left, right and center. <laughs> um, and I'll, as I said, with a baby, it's an absolute recipe for disaster, this. but um, So I'll be led in bed, panicking, thinking, God, oh my, I've got to get to sleep. I've got to get to sleep. I can, I can, I'm counting down. I'm seeing the minutes disappear. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not, not going to get my eight hours now. Maybe I can get seven and a half and so on and so forth. And then I'm waking up in the morning and I'm checking my, my sleep sleep and if it's below seven hours of, of good quality sleep or whatever i feel like crap straight away i think well that that's that's the that's the day written off because i i know the kind of debilitating effect this can be so i wonder if if this is a danger that you perceive that that we could become a, a little bit it, it's almost kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way that that once you become a bit sleep obsessed it, it can kind of take over your life a bit and you can you can start to yeah your performance can go down because you expect your performance to go down if that makes sense yeah no that that does make sense 
Um, and I guess the big challenge and uh, I guess frustration for educators is we're talking about this as being such a big, important win, but it's something they have less control over, yes. just like in their classroom where they can directly impact this stuff. Um, and that's why I think your approach to student education is, is so important. And we're seeing more and more schools now starting to take the attitude of, you know, we're here to serve the community. We are experts in education and we're going to teach the students. But part of it is we're going to help educate parents as well. Um, one nugget, if you are sleep obsessed, that I was um, told by a sleep researcher. So she said this wasn't based on a, a particular study. So it's a rough rule of thumb. Like, so quite anecdotal. But she says her gut feeling is, um, and this is what parents need to know, I think, for each electrical item that's in their child's room that isn't a light, so be it a phone, a TV, an Xbox, for each electrical item that isn't a light, you can probably minus one hour of sleep. So a child who's got a phone and a TV, she would bet that child gets two hours less than a child who doesn't have a phone or TV in their bedroom. Um, wow. Flipping which is a huge simple way of thinking about it, we think. I like that. Flipping heck. Just, just, just on sleep. Um, again, if we have parents listening or we have, um, have, have teachers listening who want to better inform their kids. So we, we can say to them, OK, if you don't get to sleep, this is the kind of effect this is going to have. Are there any messages for, from research or your own personal experience about helping kids get a better sleep so we can remove devices? Is, is, is there anything else that you'd, you'd recommend? Yeah, so uh, the devices is the big one. So um, one of the studies we looked at found that being on your phone or electronic device for two hours before bed reduces melatonin, which is the sleep hormone. Um, so the devices is one. Um, other common sleep mistakes that we see that students tell us they make, um, and adults indeed, uh, caffeinated drinks before uh, late in the evening. Uh, so we know caffeinated drinks takes about 20 minutes to half an hour to hit your system. So if you're having those drinks, just before you should usually go to bed, that's kind of a poor recipe. Um, regular bedtimes. So again, kind of what you were talking earlier about in the classroom with routine, the same is by and large true for bedtime. Sleep researchers say they can fairly accurately predict both your quantity and quality of your sleep based on what you do in the hours that build up to your sleep. Um, there's something known as the pillow test, which is um, if you fall asleep within five minutes of your head hitting the pillow, that's an indication you should be going to bed earlier. Like you shouldn't be completely crashed out, ready to fall asleep straight away by the time you crawl to bed. It should be this like gradual process. That's interesting. I, li I like that. Um, it's interesting. I'm going to be um, at the end of um, this conversation. I'm, I'm recording a segment for a podcast I'm, I'm going to put out before this one where it's what have I learned this year? Um, and one of the things I've learned this year, and this is through through having a little baby Isaac, who's, who's just next door, is he he's actually getting better at sleep now and he has white noise uh, playing to yeah. help him sleep. So oh, I've, ado I've adopted this now. So I'm, I'm absolutely white noise central. And at first it was really weird because it's really loud. Mm. And it, but now I, I don't think I can sleep without this, this white noise. And it's, it's uh, again, this is, this is kind of a general principle that, that, that I find from, from, uh, from cognitive science. And that is, it goes back to something that, that we were saying at the start. It's it's taking the research and then it's almost conducting your own little micro experiments, whether it's with yourself or with your kids to think, what can I do to 
to, to try this 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 implication from the research out and let's let's conduct my own little micro experiment for a week or two weeks let's see what happens and yeah particularly with um, white noise that that's been an absolute game changer for, for me now so i'm yeah i'm white noise central uh, now so if listeners want to try that one out you, you can have that one for free one and um, one of the things i find interesting about that that what you've just said there is that so at the age that your child is you're putting in a lot of effort into um, experimentation and trying to get this young child into a position where they can sleep through the night. So you're putting a ton of effort into it. And yet when we have teenagers, all of a sudden it's like, oh, we don't want to upset them. Uh, and I think one of the greatest things that was ever said to me as a as a as a father was this by by a teacher was like, um, Edward, you are not your child's friend. You are his father. And that for me is a very, very important distinction for parents is that it's like it's not about doing things which make necessarily uh, things that your kid wants to happen. It's about doing the right things for them and helping them and coaching them and, and, and teaching them what are the right things that they need so that by the time they're 18 or 19 and they go off and go somewhere else, hopefully not mine. <laughs> but they've got all of those things in their locker. And that's that's that's. What, what, what parenting is about fantastic okay so the next thing i'd like to ask you about is um, and again another challenge that lots of teachers face and that's motivating bored students so i i've sat through many a a maths lesson year 10 friday afternoon and I'm trying to teach the wonders of adding fractions or simultaneous equations or something brilliant like that. And the kids, some kids are struggling. They tell me they're bored and it's it's an uphill struggle the, the entire lesson. So um, what does the research say about the best ways to, to get these kids on board, to, to start them putting the effort in that we all know is is crucial for them to learn anything? Yeah, so it's um it's a really broad area um, because there's just been so much research done on motivation, um, covering different aspects of motivation. So uh, a couple of the studies that kind of stood out uh, for me, uh, one of them, which was quite, I thought, quite a cute study, was they taught a whole bunch of students a new topic in a really boring way. So, the, you know, the lecturer, the teacher was really monotone, no fancy PowerPoint or really dry um, type delivery. And they did that because they wanted to replicate the complaint that you were just describing that students have of I'm bored in the lesson. And they put them in four different conditions. Um, so the first condition weren't told why they're being taught the boring subject. Uh, the second group were told um, they needed to work hard because there's going to be a test and the test is really important. Uh, the third group were told because that's what we've always done here. That's what because you should do it. That's what we do at this school. Uh, and then the fourth group were told uh, how doing well in this subject would help them achieve their own personal goals. And then they kind of measured by self-report how much effort the students put in. And the results were quite counterintuitive to what we initially expected. Um because there's going to be a test had hardly any impact whatsoever on student motivation levels. And I guess that's kind of because you see students revise and work very differently in September, October, November, December, January, February, March, compared to how hard they work in April and May when they've got their big exams at the end of the year, because there's more immediacy towards that. Uh, but what they found was far better for motivation was tying the topic to how doing well at that topic would help them achieve their own internal goals. And that suggests kind of going back to learning outcomes or lesson objectives again, that it's not the what you're teaching that matters, 
but it's why you're teaching it that really taps into their motivation and presumably if you're passionate about your subject and your topic that you're teaching it makes sense for just 30 seconds at the start lesson to share that because it kind of gives them a reason to care as well and so in the research this is referred to as creating a sense of purpose uh, and there's it's quite an emerging area of more researches coming out of that so that's one area i find quite you're tapping into their internal motivation can i just but, on on that brad because this yes, absolutely fascinates me this as as well um there's i i think there's a real danger and i've fallen into into this trap myself that that you take something like that and i i think purpose okay what, what does purpose mean purpose means real life so purpose means trying to find a justification for why every single topic i'm teaching in my subject mathematics will have a definite key role to play in the rest of their lives and that has led to some of the worst lessons i've I've ever done in my life where i'm trying to shoehorn in reasons for teaching quadratic equations or trigonometry or sharing in ratio because i say oh well i guarantee you're going to use this you know when you're older and the kids are like why or where and then i'm I'm, I'm, I'm really having to scrape the barrel for some pathetic reasons but i think what you've said is is the key to it it's it's the teacher being enthusiastic about it and if there is a genuine link to to the real world or relevance to to the students lives then of course to tap into it but what i've certainly found just anecdotally is that the kids prefer you just to be honest and if for me being honest is look we're going to do this i i find this genuinely fun and i'm going to try and find a way to to get you to enjoy it as well i'm not going to lie to you and say that as soon as you finish school you're going to be using this every single day of your life i think being honest with the kids and 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 but at the same time tapping into that natural enthusiasm that you have for your subject i find that to be the key to providing this purpose as opposed to the the artificial route i may have gone down in the past i, I don't know if that makes sense who you'd agree right. with but that. what's interesting is with the artificial route and the, the research is fairly like distinct in, on this in terms of you want to tap into their motivation not your motivation yes yes uh, because that's when it becomes internalized. Uh, and as you say, the worry is that you go down the route of trying to find fads or trying to be really cringe when you try and relate it to <laughs> what you think 15 year olds care about. Uh, but kind of they found by getting it to tap into like, what do they want to achieve and how do they think doing well at maths will help them achieve that? That's then it becomes more internalized. Uh, the other study that I thought I would just like before I hand over to Ed was um, around there's a bit of a misconception on motivation so historically most people think if you draw like a diagram of motivation and then you draw a straight line and that leads to achievement so the more motivated i am the more likely i am to achieve whereas what one of the studies that we included found is it's it's bi-directional uh so motivation leads to achievement but achievement also leads to people being more motivated because we like doing stuff that we're getting better at so rather than going down, like you can do partly the motivational route and I'm going to try and inspire you. Um, but you can also go down the route of if I help you get better at something and I show you that you've had success and that you're progressing, uh, you'll be more motivated to then keep doing that thing again in the future so it works both ways with achievement and motivation yeah i found that um well, when i was doing my again research for the book when i came across those studies i, I found that very very surprising because i'd always <laughs> planned for motivation thought let's motivate the kids and then they'll be successful and it was a real real game changer to me to think actually if i can help the kids be successful then fingers crossed they'll, they'll be motivated and, and what i like about that is i think it's easier 
to do the latter. It's easier to plan to get the kids feeling successful using things like retrieval and the, th the things that we know from, from, from cognitive science, as opposed to trying to tap into the 30 different personalities in the class and find a way to motivate each of them, if, if that makes sense. That does. But the big debate that we've had between ourselves and I is... So you have this kind of wheel of motivation and achievement and the two kind of linked to each other um, is how do you get students on the wheel in the first place? <laughs> yes, so like, yes. So if the ones who are completely disengaged and it's really hard to show them progress and achievement because they're disengaged, how, how, do, how do you get them in that funnel or that wheel, as it were, is, is a really interesting challenge. Well, what's your views on that? Well, I think one of the things you, you talked about earlier is you, you have to be enthusiastic about your subject and even the boring bits of your subject. So uh, there is a concept of emotional contagion, which is <clears throat> primarily in, in the research that we have in the book is about having uh, kids working with uh, kids who are working harder than them, uh, which has an effect. It sort of drives the person who's who's uh, more bored by the subject to perform harder. But I, but I actually think that the key is 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 your emotional contagion. And if I mean, like I have I, I teach kids um, for my sins chemistry. And one of the things that uh, students have a lot of difficulty with is, is molar equations. And that there is a way of teaching molar equations that is exciting, that does generate some emotional contagion uh, and gets them onto that flywheel. Uh, and that really is 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 part of teaching is 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 leading people into that onto that wheel so that they get onto it fascinating yeah it's, it's like you say it's, it's a big old area isn't it motivation but what, yeah. what what intrigues me about this whole thing is that again it was never like we've we've talked about a lot of things here we've, we've talked about sleep we've talked about students revising effectively we've talked about motivation that that wasn't something I ever really started considering explicitly as as a teacher up until, as I say, two or three years ago when I've been when I've been teaching for, for for twelve years, and yet these are massive things above and beyond our own subject knowledge, above and beyond pedagogy. These are these are massive things for for teachers to consider, and that's why, as you said at the outset, having not definitive answers, but having some you know rough guidelines and best bets are, are so important for teachers because if if any of these things are lacking, if the motivation's gone if the sleep's gone and so on and so forth everything else we do almost pales into insignificance if, if that makes sense oh completely and coming from me as a psychology background it used to baffle me when i talked to teachers and asked them what they knew what i considered about my topic of like psychology and they'd go the most they got was a bit about piaget or a bit about vygotsky and like no one did any of the stuff that like i was reading about and i didn't understand because i could see the implications so much for learning but i've got to say i think if you look over the last few years uh it's actually been pretty amazing if you take a step back to think how far the profession has come in quite a short space of time um this drive really to be even more research engaged and formed and i think you've got stuff like the education endowment foundation and welcome trust and research ed and you look how many people go at the festival of education and you mentioned earlier Tom Sherrington's recent book, which we think is brilliant. Like these things are very much now becoming mainstream. Mm. It's part of good. It's just considered normal and good practice. Um, and so, but yeah, when we started working in education, doing CPD, we were getting very different requests five or ten years ago to what we're getting now, uh, which we think is really, really encouraging. What what what's the difference? If you don't mind me asking. 
So partly it's in terms of the language. So whereas before we might have had stuff around, can you do stuff around motivation or performance under pressure might be in a phrase. Now it's much more we're getting requests around metacognition, self-regulation, um, and not even on a superficial level. Like sometimes when we talk to the schools where we run our sessions, we kind of think like, God, the amount of knowledge that's already in this area now, um, be it from the head of teaching and learning, it's been really impressive because everyone's basically getting excited and more people are getting enthused about reading research and applying research. Uh, the danger becomes it becomes just a tick box exercise of go, yeah, we're really research informed or, you know, we did the metacognition CPD or the growth mindset assembly. So like we can kind of tick that box. But we're seeing more and more schools really think about how do we think about how do we integrate it for us and for our cohorts? Um, and I think that's partly because of those previous places that I mentioned now are making this stuff more available absolutely oh that, that's that's great to hear that's fantastic and um, final kind of specific question about a study from me and we've kind of touched upon this um earlier on about um about the importance of retrieval but again just putting it into the hands of of the kids what are the best ways for students to revise effectively for for exams would you say so uh it's our most common question we get asked and we think we can divide it into like do's and don'ts oh perfect <laughs> My bad. So uh, I'll let, let Edward, do you want to start on the don'ts and before I then do the do's? OK, I've got just a few. I mean, the one that <clears throat> is the most interesting to me is all, is the research on, on use of music. So particularly when I was revising, I felt that I had to listen to music while I was revising, um, specifically Pink Floyd. And, and we don't need any education <laughs> at all, uh, which uh, I thought meant that because I was revising whatever it was, integration or something like that, if I played a specific uh, type of music with uh, my revision, that all I needed to do was to recall it when I was doing my exam and magically I'd be able to do integration. Uh, and that's not the case. Actually, a lot of the research out there, well, there is uh, quite, a, quite a body of research that suggests that uh, trying to get your brain to multitask, particularly when you're listening to music and things like that, when you're trying to revise, is actually counterproductive uh, and you get worse results as a result. Uh, so that, for me, was quite an interesting uh, study uh, in the book. Uh, again, mobile phones, keep them out of sight or give them, to your, give them to someone else while you're revising. Uh, don't skip breakfast and people uh, sort of pay lip service to this a bit. The most important meal of the day. You can skip lunch if you like, if you want to skip anything, but don't skip lunch because it gets you set up well for, for learning uh, and concentration and all of that sort of stuff. So those are the ones that I'd go for on the don't side. And, and they're just interesting for us because when we ask students, how many of you got nine and a half hours sleep last night and ate breakfast? I would think less than 5% of students do both of those things. Yes. And then you go, well, that's just an easy win. Like you don't even have to be smarter or do more revision just do those two things for a start and you're ahead of the curve um the big do's i mean so obviously we've touched on like retrieval practice so the phrase we often use with students now is you don't don't do revision in order to do well in your tests you do lots of tests in order to do good revision um with retrieval um spacing of revisiting stuff um one of the biggest misconceptions i think from cognitive psychology is around the work of interleaving because uh, people often get it a bit confused. So interleaving is mixing up the topics that you study within a subject. So that allows you then to 
make connections between them and choose the appropriate strategies. So it's not to say you have to do, it's not mixing up your subjects. It's more mixing up the topics within the subject. Mm. Uh, and one of my kind of quirky ones that I quite like from this, uh, the book is they had students revise, um, I think it was a core text that they had to revise. And the two conditions were either you have to revise it because there's going to be a test or you have to revise it because you're going to have to teach it to someone else um afterwards and they found the thought of having to teach it to someone else massively improve people's learning and memory um and this is what's known as the protege effect is by being the one who has to teach it to someone it helps me organize and clarify my thoughts it helps me predict what questions you might ask me so then i have to go revise that sort of stuff um and so that's why having a good study partner or even as a parent, if you're not sure about the topic and you think, oh, how can I help my child revise? Have them teach you can be a really, really effective revision strategy. Fantastic. Well, that's brilliant. That. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, now, there's a danger, of course, that and I would very happily do this. We could go through literally every one of the 77 <laughs> studies in the book and then perhaps nobody will buy the book. So what, what I'm going to do um, before we um, start wrapping things up with some reflections, I just want to throw it over to, to you both and feel free perhaps to to each pick one study that 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 you want to you want to answer one of these questions with but either a study that surprised you the most or a study that's made you personally change something that you do in your day-to-day practice or just one that as you've got got a bit of a soft spot for that that's a general favorite and perhaps if you just pick pick one out um each for that and just tell me why you've chosen it and uh, again maybe start with edward if that's all right okay i'm going to go for the study on feedback uh, and why it surprised me was I thought that uh, a study like that would mention that there's a big difference between giving feedback and not giving feedback in terms of how students learn and, and memorize and, and, and get better at a subject. Uh, and I thought that the main drive of a study or the main findings of a study would be giving feedback is really good. But actually, what surprised me about it is that it turns out that 38 percent in their studies of the feedback that was given actually did more harm than good <laughs> and that's a bit of a shock yes yeah <laughs> so uh, there is a good there's good ways of giving feedback and there are a poor ways of giving feedback and i, I suppose if the, the big takeaway from it is to concentrate more on uh in terms of feedback concentrating more on the processes and strategies that are required to do better rather than on the results or feeling good about whatever it is that you're trying to do and that for me was uh, it was kind of where uh, I suppose logically it should go, but the shocker was just how damaging some feedback is. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right on that, Edward. That that absolutely blew my mind when when I first came across that. Because the other flip side of that is. Um, giving feedback it's certainly not a kind of time neutral thing for a teacher to do that that could be something that takes up six or seven hours a week of, of their time and the thought that not only might not be having no effect but actually could be having a negative effect is just i mean that, that's something that needs addressing absolutely but brilliant choice well, what about you brad what would you go for uh so the study that surprised me the most um so have you uh are you familiar with the marshmallow experiment Oh, yeah. Is this something yeah. about kind of, uh, yeah, being able to resist kind of temptation or something? Yeah, but, but if you could outline it for our listeners. Sure. So it's one of the most iconic studies in psychology. It was done over 40 years ago. They basically found uh, students who, if you offer them a marshmallow and the students were able to wait uh, on the promise of getting a second, 
Uh, those students who waited or, as they say, delayed their gratification, they tend to do way better in a whole range of outcomes, be it in school, in their careers, in their life satisfaction, even in the quality of their relationships. And so this was kind of always held as the big study of if we can just get students to delay gratification, they'll do really, really well. Uh, and the study is one of the most known, but the study that in answer to your question that surprised me the most was actually a fairly recent update on this study and because everyone knows the original study but hardly anyone knows the updated version and so what they did on the updated version is they had half the students uh, they saw the teacher lie to another student uh, at the start of the experiment uh, and so they made the teacher seem unreliable or untrustworthy uh, and so they wanted to find if I don't trust the person giving me the advice am I then less likely to follow that advice to delay that gratification? And it found that students who saw the teacher as trustworthy, they waited, I think it was about 13 or 14 minutes. Whereas the students who didn't trust the teacher, they only waited about two or three minutes before they gave in. And then that pretty much changed how psychologists viewed the concept of delayed gratification. So it's not something that, you know, you might have a six out of 10 ability and someone else might have an eight out of 10 ability. And it's just a lottery of birth that the eight out of tenors do better than the six out of tenors. It actually suggests that the environment that we create for our students is so key for them to develop that resilience and that delayed gratification. And it's all built on trust and reliability. And so I couldn't find one study that found that I have to like the person who I'm learning from that really makes a difference to how much I learn from them, but I do have to trust them and they do have to be reliable. So even if I don't like what they're going to say, if I can kind of predict it, if they're consistent, then that's so key for that motivation and that resilience. And that kind of changed it a bit for me because then it kind of thought that's something that I can impact on as an educator. Um, and I thought that's quite an interesting, quite an important finding. Wow. That's a brilliant one. That, that is, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And it, again, it, it, again to, to quote dylan william again he says that teaching's a relationships business and if the relationship right. isn't there and um, then again we're, we're going to be in trouble and often the focus for me in the past has been to try and make the kids like me and that's i mean that can be a really dangerous game to yeah. to, to, to play whereas trust is something that's much more in control because kids can see you being consistent over a period of time and that can have that that's the thing that has the positive effect yeah that is uh that's brilliant fantastic well as i say i, I could literally um speak to you all day about these studies but um i think hopefully we've we've wet the listeners appetite enough for this uh for this book which is absolutely fantastic so what i want to do um before we wrap up is just a couple of reflections from you both um if that's all right um is there an example of something important that you've both changed your mind about? Uh, so I guess for me, like when we started, we made much focus on student like interactions and student workshops. I was like, if I can just help them develop their mindset and learn how to revise, like that's the win. And I now kind of think if you you have to do uh, staff just make such a big impact because it's I, the more I see it, it's about actually the one's environment and the culture makes a difference. And in the last year or two, I've really come around with the idea of actually it's not just staff or it's not just students. It has to be parents as well. So if you imagine it as a triangle, like you have to have all three sides for that message to stick. Whereas before, I think I just look at an individual's performance and think it's about my interactions with them and their individual choices as opposed to creating a system that gives them the best chance of, of flourishing. Um, so that's probably... Uh, my kind of change that where I now am at. Fantastic. How about you, Edward? Well, I'm going to be really boring and just um, go with that as well. I just, as having just done my uh, maths A level for the uh, 
third time now uh, with my son. Uh, it is, uh, you know, it, it is so important what goes on at, at home. That's the attitude towards learning, uh, the structures that you provide your child. Uh, and and so I think quite a bit of our work at the moment is in this knotty problem is how do you <clears throat> encourage or in, indeed teach parents to teach their children in a way which is consistent with what you're teaching them or the mindsets that you're you're trying to encourage at, at school. And it is a tricky, tricky problem because you could run workshops as we do with parents or do uh, after school talks to parents. But normally the people who turn up to, to those are the people who are already doing a pretty good job. Yes. And it's the ones who are who perhaps had terrible um school experiences themselves uh, or are just very very busy or those are the ones that you need to try to coach and teach and 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 there's the there's the puzzle is how do you engage these people in the limited amount of time that you have because you guys as teachers you've got lives as well uh how do you how do you engage parents in the in the tremendous and important work that you're doing with, with their children and and too often the you know in some schools, the some schools it's like, well, what's education for? Uh, but in other schools, it's it's sort of the, the top end is even worse, I think, which is like, well, we give them to you to teach. Yes. And when they come home, I expect them to have been taught. Yes. And that's just as corrosive and as 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 difficult to deal with and as as bad for the students as as education is what's education for. Is, you're right and I, again i'm sure this i'm sure there's lots of different different studies and statistics bombing around on this but somebody told me just this last week that nationally it's something ridiculous like only 22 percent of parents turn up to parents evening or it was something something scarily low like that and as you say it's the, it's it's the wrong parents if anything that, that, that exactly. turn, up, turn up at these things so is there anything again if we've teachers listening here who this will be resonating with them so much that they've got they've got kids in their class who they know they need to engage with their parents because it's they're essentially fighting a losing battle with 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 certain ones of these students is there is there any advice that if you can get the parents on the phone or you can get a meeting with them what are, what's the kind of angle what what are the things to say to to bring these parents on board is is there any guidelines there well, I, I think that uh, one of the most important things is things like this podcast is actually we've all got to get together as educators and find out. It is such a tricky, such a tricky problem that we need to find out. So who's succeeding here and how are they succeeding? And let's all do that um, because it seems to be an unsolvable conundrum, but there's got to be a solution to it. And if there isn't a solution to it, we've got some serious difficulties ahead. And I, I think that approach of it's never us, like the teachers versus the parents. Mm. Uh, when we've seen it work well, it's very much been a joint, very much been a joint effort. Um, and indeed, one of uh, one of bits of the research that stood out for me was the biggest impact that parents have on their child's academic performance is their attitude towards uh, education and their, and high expectations for their child. Um, so it has to be a joint effort um, and having them become aware of just how much impact they have and how the school can support them and how they can support the school. 
and so we're all in it together because we all ultimately want the same thing um it's not this combative me versus you it's how do we all get the best for your child absolutely fantastic and the final question for me before i hand over to you for your big three um is there anything that either of you wish you'd known when you first started out either in your careers or in kind of education in general that you know now yeah um okay so for me uh i think i was in a way too i don't know what the word is too soft or too lenient uh, i'd always kind of because i had a very inclusive class and that was my whole thing i wanted them to know that they were uh, part of the team and we're all in it yes. together um and that often led to me lowering my expectations i think of what some of my students were capable of and i'd accept their first answer instead of their best answer uh i wouldn't leave any time after i would asked a question before i got an answer because I, I found it awkward so i just accept any answer whereas the more i've kind of read on the research and the more we've done our, our workshops is nothing really beats high expectations um someone told me the quote that no one rises to low expectations and like for some of your students if you don't have high expectations for them they might not get that any that anywhere else in their life um and so it's high expectations of themselves high expectations from the teachers and as you were just saying high expectations from parents um because we set the bar high um and help and support them to get there as opposed to lowering the bar to make them feel good just about poor achievement fantastic and, and how about yourself Edward well for me I think the most interesting thing that I would like to have known when I started um, was about metacognitive questioning really and the power of questions and that there are different types of questions that are applicable and appropriate at different times of the learning process uh, so for instance when was the battle of hastings is is a great question but it's it has one answer and, and it is appropriate at a certain amount of time uh, at a certain time uh, during the process probably when you are trying to get a, a knowledge base um, but then there, there are other questions that you could ask about the battle of hastings which perhaps uh, end with better learning outcomes i they they learn more because they are stretching and engaging engaging the brain and all of those hooks within the brain that allow you to um, take information in and, and memorize it. So, for instance, you could ask, well, why did why did William uh, invade England? Uh, so that's the next sort of level up. And uh, another question that you could ask, again, with lots of different answers, is uh, what would have been different in England if William hadn't invaded England? And then finally, maybe you might want to, at a much higher level, you might want to ask a question like, what's the difference between William's invasion and Caesar's invasion? Uh, and each of those is is gets a different response within the brain and different levels of learning and, and is appropriate at different times. And for me, that is a fascinating idea um, that I, I didn't know about when I first started because questioning wasn't top of my mind. Brilliant. Flipping out. Pl plenty of food for thought there. That, that's superb, that. And um, well, to, to wrap things up, it's it's time for your big three. Now, I don't mind how you do this. You, because there's two of you, you can have a big six if you want, or you can come together for a big three. I'm, I'm happy either way. But are there three websites or blog posts that you'd recommend our listeners check out? And what I'll do is I'll put links to these in the show notes. OK, so uh, we have decided on this one to go for a joint answer. Nice. I get, I get to do the preamble and set it up so that... Uh, Brad can hit it into touch. So <laughs> our big three are? 
Um, obviously, our own website. Um, so we do a regular blog um, disseminating the latest studies that we find interesting. Um, so that's on innerdrive.co.uk. Um, and attach that. If anyone Googles innerdrive resources, there's a whole ton of free stuff that is aimed at both students and teachers. Um, so yeah, we had to kind of plug ourselves, I guess, to start with. Um, obviously. Obviously. Um, the second one, uh, for those who haven't already been on it, uh, we do think the Education Endowment Foundation is a really good site of weighing up existing research, looking at the impact, looking at the cost. Um, and I think their toolkit is one of the single most important factors in driving uh, this drive to be research engaged over the last few years. So we're quite big fans of their site. Uh, and the third one, uh, I thought I'd do something a little bit different. One of the blogs that uh, I really enjoy reading, um, there's a chap who's a psychologist who was heavily involved in education. Uh, I love reading his blogs. Um, it's by a guy called Mark Smith. Um, he's done a couple of books, I think, on psychology in the classroom and the emotional learner. But every time I read his blogs, I learn something new. Um, and I think his writing style is brilliant. I know he also does some stuff for Tess. Um, so we're quite big fans of that here in the drive as well. And which, what, how will we find that, that Mark Smith one? Sorry, Brad. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's called The Emotional Learner is the name of his blog. Um, if not, I can always send you the link. No, that's perfect. That is fantastic. Well, there'll be links to those um, in the show notes. That, that's brilliant. Um, right, well, j- just just time for me to, to, to wrap up, really, and just, just a couple of thanks. So first off, thank you for, for giving up your time today, both of you, to, to, to speak to me. It's I, Again, it's I'm so lucky to be doing this podcast. I, ju- I just learned so much, and it's just been fascinating to talk to you both. But also, thank you for, for writing the book. I mean, you know it's a good book whenever you've got people like Dylan William banging on about how good it is, uh, Professor Dame, Alison Peacock, um, Carl Hendrick, all the big names are coming out saying that this this is a fantastic book. And I'd not seen anything quite like this before that that takes these big essential studies, distills it down in an easily accessible way. And then, again, offers me guidance, but also challenges me to think as we've spoke about the whole the whole show, what do I need to do to, to make this work for my kids, my situation, my context, and, and so on and so forth. And for the time poor teacher, this is perfect because you can you can dip into one of these every night. You can use it to, as, a, as a stimulus for a departmental meeting discussion or at break time between two colleagues. It's, it, it's tailor-made for the realities of, of life as a busy teacher but to get us engaged with the research and discussing about how we can make it work for, for, for our kids and for our situation. So thank you for writing the book. It really, really is a, a wonderful book. And I, again, I have no hesitation recommending that, that, that people check this out. So um, Edward and Brad, thank you so much for your time today. I've, I've had an absolute ball. And thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. There you have it. There was my interview with Bradley and Edward. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Honestly, I know I get a bit of stick for, for this on, on Twitter off a few people who will go nameless, but um, I, I'm enthusiastic during these conversations because I choose people who I am genuinely inspired by. Um, and also, I don't talk about books unless I genuinely loved reading the book and that was very much the case with this book and and with this conversation. I'm always a bit nervous going into interviews with people I don't know or haven't spoke to before 
and that was the case here. But again, they're just Bradley and Edward are just just great guys who it was an absolute pleasure to to talk to and, and to learn from. So that brings us to the takeaway. Now there's a fair few here. And to um, kind of adopt the theme of, of Bradley and Edward's book, I'm going to go for kind of bite-sized ones um, and, and cover quite a few. And then hopefully if there are any of these that people think, oh, I want to look at a bit more in depth about that, then you can either um, have a look in Bradley and Edward's book or do a bit of Googling um, yourself. So the first off is, is mobile phones. Now, this is something that... Um, Catherine, the um, head teacher from Michaela, um, said on my recent slice of advice, what did you learn from from this year podcast episode, that um, mobile phones are the bane of, of, of many teachers' lives. And again, as I, as I said in the conversation, there's lots of benefits to the technology. Having this technology in your pocket is something that even when I was a student, I, I couldn't even dream of being able to plot graphs and solve these incredible equations and do all these geometrical transformations and so on and so forth. But um, as Bradley and Edward pointed out, does this benefit, the benefit of, of that kind of access to technology, does it outweigh a 14% dip in GCSE uh, results for the lowest attainers? 14%. Wow. Um, so that's definitely something that the head teachers, school leaders or classroom teachers listening who have control over that need to need to think about how do you how do we harness the benefits of this technology, but in a way that doesn't have the, these less desirable outcomes. And um, then we get to resilience. Now, this may be really bad of me, but I lump resilience under the same kind of banner as, as growth mindset. Um, and I'm going to be speaking, hopefully, if I can get the interview sorted um, in the next few months with, with people who know far more about resilience than me and can probably pick up on that misconception that I've got. But um, it seems that from, from the conversation with Bradley and Edward, for resilience to work, for growth mindset training to work, it needs two things. It needs firstly consistency and secondly support. And consistency is crucial. Um, if this is just a, a one-off assembly or a post, few posters up against the wall, or if this is something that a school or, or a teacher goes mental on for a week, but then doesn't follow up, it just disappears like, any, like anything. It needs consistency. It needs constant reinforcement, constant reminders, constant referring back to. But it also needs support. It needs it needs expertise. Telling kids to be resilient or telling them to have a growth mindset is is no good. And for me, I, I liken this to um, to, to teaching anything, to, to modeling a new method or procedure. And if I don't show my kids exactly what that looks like, why it looks like that, go through it step by step. And then also if they go on a slightly different path, if I don't have a way to steer them back onto the right path in a way that makes sense to them, they're not going to learn that method or procedure. Well, it's the same for this. Like we, we can't just tell kids to be resilient, to have growth mindsets. It's got to have that expertise, that support that, that guides them down the right path. And, and that's difficult. That's difficult. So as I say, this is something... I think I've been guilty of dismissing in the past this resilience and growth mindset and so on and so forth. There's got to be something to it. But I, for me, I need to be convinced of, 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 of that it definitely is powerful. But crucially, what does it take to make it work? Homework. Now, homework isn't something we've discussed all that much, really, um, on the podcast. I often ask uh, teachers, particularly math teachers, when they're on, what, do they, what does their homework policy look like, and so on and so forth. But it's fascinating to delve into the research behind this. So the first one that struck me there, frequency beats quantity. And this goes back to routines. I'm obsessed with routines. Routines in the classroom, routines for lining up, routines for asking questions mathematical behavior that I describe as reflect, expect, check when I talk about my views on variation. I'm 
obsessed with routine. And I, I like that. Frequency beats quantity. 60 minutes seems to be the magic number. And that um, seems to be the thing that allows students to put the effort in, but it doesn't then have the diminishing marginal returns that come from, from longer work. And also it's good from a teacher workload perspective. Again, it's quality work that kids are putting in as opposed to just spending hours and hours and hours doing, doing the same old thing. But of course, 60 minutes requires school coordination across subjects. And that's something that's not always, it doesn't always happen. Um, often kids will say, well, I've got five or six homeworks that are due in tomorrow and so on and so forth and then they'll have a couple of days where they've got not not got much on so timetabling across homeworks to try and get this magic number of 60 that that's going to be an important one and again it comes back to something that's going to come up time and time again um, and it has been on previous episodes that it doesn't matter about all this research. It doesn't matter about cognitive science, working memory and all that kind of thing. If the kids don't put the effort in, it's all a waste of time. 60 minutes sat there with kind of one eye on the homework and another eye on Fortnite or on WhatsApp or whatever it is, isn't going to be as good as a dedicated, focused, hard, solid 60 minutes so it's, it's not just the time it's how students spend that time and, and for that we need to get kids on board with it we need to show them the benefits of it and so on and we also need to bring parents in and again this is something that's going to keep coming up in this takeaway the role of parents parents not not being able to necessarily sit down and help students with the mathematics or the english or the history homework but to check kids are doing it to check that they're doing it in the right conditions and also to help support the teachers in the message that this is an important thing for kids to be doing. The role of parents, the more I read, the more I speak to people, the more I'm convinced it's absolutely massive. And that comes to maths anxiety. Now, maths anxiety is something that probably criminally we haven't discussed enough on this podcast. We did it with um, Lucy Rycross-Smith when she came on to talk about um, the Cambridge Mathematics Expressos. But I definitely want to talk to, to more experts on this. But again, speaking to Bradley and Edward there, the role of parents um, it comes into play. Again, this negative messaging, this ceiling on ambitions. I always struggle in maths. I was never good at maths. Just kind of lowers the aspirations. But also the point that often I forget... The overpraise is, is bad as well. Kind of false praise, saying, oh, well done, you're doing absolutely brilliant when the kids aren't. That, 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 can, be, that can be just as, um, as, as damaging as, as, as not giving students the praise, not giving them the confidence they need to perhaps overcome this anxiety. As I say, anxiety is something that I've only scratched the surface of, and uh, it's a massive thing that, that yeah, I, I, need to, I need to look into more. Um, sleep. Wow. Um, I've, how many times have I mentioned these in, in, in takeaways now? Sleep. Um, I'm not going to do a big thing on this now because I've got a special sleep episode coming up soon. But the big thing for me is increased awareness. It, it, it amazes me that it isn't at the forefront of all schools' policies. Sleep. Because it doesn't matter whatever else you do. If kids aren't sleeping, they're not taking in information, they're not retaining information, they're not processing information. Sleep needs to be the big one, the big thing. And as I say, I've got an episode all about that uh, coming up. Um, last couple, motivation. Motivation is a fascinating one. My views on motivation completely changed whenever I started reading research into it. I was often of the, well, I was always of the view that you motivate kids to help them be successful. But then the more I read and particularly um, reading the work of Greg Ashman and the studies he put me onto suggested the line of causation was the other way around that actually you get kids being successful and that then motivates them and you get onto this virtuous circle. But I found it interesting that the question that, that Bradley and Edward posed there is how do you get them into onto that virtuous circle or to use their phrase how do you get them onto the flywheel because this this kind of self-fulfilling 
get kids feeling successful, they're motivated, then they're more successful, then they're more motivated. It's brilliant, but how do you kickstart the process? Do you need that extrinsic motivation to kickstart the process? Do you need this, this praise, even these rewards to get kids to put that extra effort in that leads to them to be successful, that then makes them more motivated and so on and so forth? Or is it enough just to get them feeling successful from the outset? And again, it will de depend from teacher to teacher, from kid to kid. If you've got a disaffected year 10 who absolutely hates maths, has had a terrible experience of maths, what's the best way to get them on board? Is it to give them some ext extrinsic motivation? Is it to essentially give them a bit of pizza if they stay behind for a revision class or to give them kind of praise? Um, and really big them up? Or is it to teach them in a way that for the first time they get something that they've never got before? Well, both are gonna be important and it's it's gonna be, it's gonna depend on your knowledge of the student as to which is gonna be the, the thing you need to lead with, the thing you need to go with first. Um, and I like that, the, the idea of this emotional contagion from students and teacher, I think that's a really nice one. Just kids seeing that teachers are genuinely passionate about their subject, it can't help but spread around and that can only be a good thing. Um, final one before, well, final littleish one before I do the big one, um, and that's revision. Um, I found that interesting, the combination of sleep and breakfast being important. The, it, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a load of cliches bombing around that I've said to kids before in the past and I've never known whether they're true. Um, I'm convinced now by the sleep one and the breakfast one seems important as well. Um, and then, then the big thing as well, um, re revising by testing, by self-quizzing, by inducing retrieval, not by highlighting, not by watching videos and so on and so forth, but, but this self-quizzing, we know from the Dunlosky work that this is the most effective way for students to revise and retain and um, retain information and um, interleaving the, the more I speak to teachers the more I'm becoming aware that a kind of shift has happened. No one was talking into leaving a few years ago. Now everyone's talking it, but I think a lot of people have kind of got a bit of the wrong end of the stick with, with interleaving. And it was interesting to hear Bradley and Edward speak about this, that interleaving within subjects is a really good idea to, to do, certainly in the classroom and also when students are revising. So you're doing a bit of fractions work, then let's switch to solving some solving some um, linear equations. Then let's switch to, to drawing pie charts. This rebooting, this reloading and, and also noticing connections within subject is is really important but not between subjects so it doesn't seem to be beneficial doing 10 minutes of maths and switching to 10 minutes of French then 10 minutes of English and so on this is this task switching cost that, that you often hear about in in research outside of the, of the world of education so interleaving within subjects is a good thing as opposed to doing three hours of the same area of mathematics um, um, non-stop but interleaving between subjects possibly not and also the bit the, the the big one in terms of revision teach it to someone else try and teach what you're revising to somebody else whether it's a parent whether it's a fellow student or even I found for, for kids who don't have anyone around to do that get them to write it down describe the method that you're doing just on a piece of paper that process of trying to put your thoughts into words into a logical sequence into a step it can be really really powerful i found for, for, for students and then the big one um, and this is the big thing i got when i was reading reading the book and whenever I, whenever i read a lot of different research i think to myself okay the vast majority of these studies are, do, are done in laboratories um, and they have to be right because it's a controlled environment um, and often they're they're based on kind of re re 
kind of artificial scenarios, retrieval of vocabulary pairs or memories of pictures and so on and so forth. And there's big dangers there of making inferences in the classroom environment because the classroom environment, there's so many different factors um, coming into play. There's relationships between student and student, student and teacher. There's the time of the day, the day of the week, what's happened at home, all that kind of thing comes into play and interferes. It's, it's messy. It plays around with, with the data. Um, so for me, micro-experiments is the key to this. It's, it's taken these, these findings from the research, the, these 77 studies from Bradley and Edwards' book or from any book or, or anything that you read, it's taken these, the, the, these takeaways, taken these, these implications, these recommendations, but then doing little micro-experiments with, with students, whether it's groups of students within your class or whether it's try something with your year nine class and then your year tens, or whether it's let's try something with year eights for this half term and the next half term I'm going to switch to something else. And of course, you're not going to get the same validity. You've got all kinds of issues there. But it, it's for me, it comes down to the big question is, what do I need to do to make this work for me? I've got the kind of general picture of what is a good idea, what's backed up by the evidence, but what do I need need to do to take that big idea and make it work for me and for me it's it's these micro experiments these these moments of reflection after you've taught a lesson or kids have done an assessment or something like that that enable me to get a sense of where I need to tweak things to to make it work so Loads there. I, I was a bit of a babble that, but I, hopefully some of some of it made sense. Um, I, I again, <laughs> I'll get I'll get slated for this, but I do strongly recommend you, you you snap up this book. It it's great the way it's laid out. You can just dip into it, dip out of it. I I mean no disrespect here to, to the authors here, but it's kind of a bit a, an ideal toilet book. Have it in your toilet. You're in there. Let's not go into too much detail here, but you've probably let's say you've got a few minutes to play with. You crack open this book. You can read a study, and 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 you can do it in one go. You can, and then you can think, all right, maybe I'm going to try a bit of that tomorrow or next week, and so on and so forth. The ideal toilet book. Um, it's a surprise it didn't get me to, to to write that for the front cover. Anyway, um, so all that remains for me to do now is to thank a few people. Firstly, thank you to to Bradley and Edward for for giving up their time to come on the show. It's absolutely fascinating to speak to them. And um, thank you to PodcastThemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show and a big thank you to you my loyal listener and um, if you're listening to this and just as it's been released it's and you're in the uk it's the start of yet another school year can you believe it where the flipping heck has that summer gone but hopefully um, i'm going to try and help us uh, get through another year and being evidence informed with some of the wonderful guests that i've got lined up so whether you listen to these podcasts on your commute to work when you're walking the dog whether you're going for a run doing the washing up i hope you find them, them interesting interesting um, and as insightful as I find them. Uh, you can help support this podcast. The easiest way is to leave a review on wherever you get your podcast from. The next level from that is to recommend this uh, an episode to, to one of your friends, um, perhaps a colleague um, from another subject. And then if you feel uh, so inclined and you want to offer some support to this podcast, then patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths is where you can donate to buy me a Mellow Birds a month. Anyway, um, yeah, I think that's me. I don't think I have anything more to say. You'll be pleased to know. So I um, really hope you enjoyed that one um, and I'll be back with another fascinating guest um, very soon. You take care of yourselves. Bye for now.